I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. The sky is the limit. The U.S. and Canada are touting airdrops of aid as potential lifelines for the people of Gaza. But a former aid official for the U.S. government tells us the plans fall far short. Beyond the brink, according to hospital reports, at least 10 children have now died of starvation in Gaza. And an aid worker in Rafah tells us she is seeing hunger everywhere. Assets to ashes. One minute she was sitting inside her Texas panhandle home. The next she was fleeing with her family. Now she's just trying to make sense of the damage done by the largest wildfire in Texas history. These booths were made for talking. The diner booth from the final scene of The Sopranos is generating huge bids at auction after drawing fans to the greasy spoon where that scene was shot or not shot. We'll never know. He wishes he hadn't done it, but it's water under the bridge. At least French President Emmanuel Macron hopes the Seine is water, or mostly water anyway, because he just promised to swim in it. And humpback isn't just a noun. Underwater photos snapped by citizen scientists aren't just cool, they're historic, after researchers find they document humpback whale sex for the first time. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that knew they could do it. For desperate civilians in Gaza, there is a sliver of hope that some relief could come from the air. Today, the United States announced that its military would drop humanitarian supplies in the coming days. Canada has also said it's considering an airdrop to Gazans facing starvation. Israel has been criticized for not allowing enough ground convoys into the besieged territory. Yesterday, more than 100 people were killed trying to get food from aid trucks. Gaza health officials claim that Israeli troops fired on the crowd The Israeli military said most of the deaths were due to trampling and people being run over by aid trucks. Jeremy Kanindyk is the president of Refugees International. He led USAID's Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance during the Obama administration. We reached him in Washington. Jeremy, you've organized these kinds of airdrops in Nepal, the Philippines, uh, and Iraq. Can they help ease some of the desperation for people in Gaza? They can help, but I think we need to be really clear on how much they will actually help. You know, these are at best uh, a marginal tool relative to the volume of need that exists in Gaza today. Uh, The important thing to understand about airdrops is that they're very expensive, they are very logistically cumbersome, and they do not deliver a high volume of aid. Um, One airplane, depending on the size, can drop the equivalent of maybe a couple of trucks. And in terms of safety uh, and an you know, as we saw yesterday, and we've been reporting on you know the more than 100 people killed as people, you know, as they tried to get access to food aid, and there are questions about exactly what happened and when. 
but people are dead and there was chaos there. We That's know right. that for sure. Can these kinds of drops help alleviate that kind of danger or do they make it even worse? Well, it really depends what is set up on the ground in the area where the drop will occur. So when we would organize these kinds of drops in Iraq, for example, we would coordinate very closely with the people who were there on the ground. So they knew when the drops were occurring, they would make sure that the area uh, in the drop zone was clear and that they would be prepared to receive and distribute the, the aid once it, once it arrived. I think what we saw yesterday was that that sort of coordination is very challenging because the situation has deteriorated so far in northern Gaza. People are so desperate and there is so little, there is so little organization. And because the main humanitarian actors that would normally be involved on the receiving end of a drop like this are not being permitted by the Israeli government to have free access to northern Gaza. The ridiculous thing about all of this is the only reason that airdrops need to occur is because the Israeli government is blocking humanitarians from moving goods overland through the border. Uh, you know, the, the Israeli government here is sort of the equivalent of what blocked us in Nepal, which was an earthquake. The immovable obstacle in Nepal was an earthquake, and here it's the Israeli Defense Forces. So given everything you've said, given your experience and where the situation is at, when you hear that the Canadian U and U.S. governments are organizing airdrops, that they're pointing to airdrops as a possible solution, what do you say to them? I'm not going to say don't do it, because if it can help, if it can get some aid in, then it's it's worth doing. But I think it should prompt a very, very hard look at why this is even necessary. Um, you know, the Canadian government doesn't necessarily have the level of influence with Israel to you know, to force open the overland crossings, but the U.S. government does. And it is it's just absurd, frankly, that the U.S. government, you know, with a with a military that is a, a partner military of the U.S. that is conducting an offensive that has direct material U.S. support, that at the same time the U.S. has to resort to tools that we used to work around ISIL in Iraq or around the Soviets during the Berlin airlift. You know, it, it's insane that we're having to do that with a partner military that you know on an offensive that that we you know, we supposedly support. It is just absurd. And I think it points to a much larger failure of U.S. policy, which is that the U.S. has been pushing Prime Minister Netanyahu for almost five months now to take care to not, uh, not kill civilians and to make sure that humanitarian aid can get in in mm -hmm. an extensive way throughout the territory. He hasn't listened to us on either front. Yeah. And this is sort of a, a fig leaf now to, to, to cover for the complete failure on both of those tracks. The, the U.S. says it, it is, you know, speaking to Israel, pressuring Israel behind the scenes, you know, privately to, to get more aid in. What does it suggest to you, not just about foreign policy, but, but the state of the, of the relationship between Israel and the U.S.? We have to get real about what we are likely to see out of the Netanyahu government here. The U.S. government up to the president himself has been talking at and pleading with Netanyahu for five months to listen to us on these things. It has become a huge issue domestically. It has become an electoral issue for the president. And yet all we continue to do is talk. Prime Minister Netanyahu has made very clear he is happy to get yelled at and ignore it as long as we keep the weapons flowing. And I think as long as we keep the weapons flowing and as long as we make very clear that no matter what he does, we will keep the weapons flowing, 
then he will continue to ignore us. Do you see uh, a scenario where that flow stops? I wish I did. I don't know what the U.S. government's red line is anymore, but it's very hard to take their words seriously when they've been saying basically the same things for five months, watching them be ignored for five months, and just continuing to talk. And they need to find a way to up the ante. And until they find a way to up the ante to show Netanyahu that there are consequences to ignoring this, then he'll continue to ignore it. In terms of aid, if, you know, you said you wouldn't tell them not to do airdrops, but but are there other alternatives in terms of delivering aid in this current reality that you would suggest? Yes, absolutely. The, you know, the humanitarian groups, the NGOs, the UN have been pleading with Israel to open northern border crossings so that they can move things through those border crossings in the north rather than having to bring them up from the south. They have also made repeated requests to bring up convoys from the south. Most of those requests are denied by Israel. And uh, for the last month or so, they have been unable to move things up the roads because even when Israel approves the request to move, they still can't safely move. There was a very uh, a jarring incident in early February where a UN convoy, UN food convoy, was to head to the north, had been approved to move by the Israeli Defense Forces, had been stopped midway up for inspection at a, an Israeli checkpoint, and then was shelled from the sea by Israeli naval forces. So it's very hard for humanitarians to operate. I mean, it's impossible, frankly, for humanitarians to operate an effective uh, relief response under those kinds of circumstances. So yeah, if the Israelis were serious about facilitating a humanitarian response, there is a lot we could do. And because they're not, we have to resort to air trips. Jeremy, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Jeremy Kanindike is the president of Refugees International. We reached him in Washington. The Texas panhandle is on fire. Multiple fires are burning in areas of the northernmost part of the state, including the largest recorded fire in Texas history. There have been at least two deaths and properties have been destroyed, including Ryan Hightower's home in Fritch. She's staying in Buena Vista, Texas. That's where we reached her. Ryan, you and your family are certainly going through a a lot right now. How are you doing? We're taking it day by day. It's been tough. Um... We're managing as a family and a community. We're, it's one step at a time. <laughs> you were at home with your son, your niece, and your nephews earlier this week, and it really all started with a knock on your door. What did you see when you answered? Um, I picked all the kids up early from school because we had a fire in 2014 on Mother's Day when I was here for that, and I knew how quickly these fires could spread, so I picked everybody up around noon. And we went to my house, which was considered the safe zone at the time. It was blue skies. You couldn't see the smoke. Um, Got the kids snacks and was packing a little to-go bag for me and my 10-year-old, just in case we did get evacuated. And um, we weren't there for very long. And my 13-year-old niece said she thought she had heard something knock on the door, but she thought, no, it's just the kids running around. But something told her to get up and open the door. And when she did, she screamed. And what they call me, they call me Lala. And she screamed Lala. 
and I ran out of the room and she said, I think that's a sheriff. And she said, I can't see nothing. And I went to the door and it literally looked like the movies, you know, the end of days, the Armageddon, it was smoke. I could barely see the sheriff running back to his truck. And I opened the door and he's screaming at us, get out, get out now. I grabbed the kids and got them in the vehicle. I ran back inside because my keys, I had to find my keys. They were not in the spot I put them. I have a four-year-old nephew, so he likes to play with things. Mm -hmm. And grabbed all four of my animals in my arms and put them all in the car. And by the time we got to the car and my brother-in-law met us at the end of the driveway, and as we were driving off, our street was engulfed within seconds. At that point, did you assume that your home wouldn't be there when you, when you came back? I, no, I honestly, in my heart, I was like, it's just smoke. They're getting us out of here because of the smoke. Because mm-hmm. I didn't see flames. All I saw was black. I didn't see the flames. I could feel heat. But in my mind, I'm thinking they're just getting us out of here because of the smoke and the wind is blowing. And, you know, it's, you, you can die from smoke inhalation. I really mm-hmm. and never in a million years thought that I wasn't going to come home to our house. We literally just moved there a month ago, oh, January awesome. 20th, and put everything we had into this move from Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so, no, that wasn't even on my list that my house was going to be gone. And my dad is the one, um, he's lived in this town for 20-some-odd years, and you know they weren't letting people back in that area, but my dad knows everybody, and it's a small town, and he said, I need to check on my daughter's house because she's not going to be able to be okay until we know. And my dad was the first one to see it. And he didn't tell me. He got back to his house and walked past me after I asked him the question. He didn't look at me, and I knew in my heart. And then my brother-in-law said, he doesn't have the heart to tell you, but it's gone. And I said, like, completely gone? He said, there's absolutely nothing left. How did you react? I lost it. Um, I know it's just stuff, but it was our stuff. It was my children's stuff. It's family heirlooms. It's stuff, pictures and stuff that I can't get back. I know some people say it's material. You know, you can buy it again, but you can't buy memories back. I have them in my head, but the letters, the pictures, like I said, family heirlooms, just the thought that we were there one minute and the thing that, you know, had we stayed there any longer that, you know, my nieces and nephews and my son would be gone and myself, like it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was, I was worried for my neighbors who right next door, they're my landlord. You know, they, they left before we did. And, um, you know, they have animals, livestock, uh, chickens, goats, and, like, everything just started running through my head. Like, did anything survive? And what is your insurance situation? Um, we're working on that. It's kind of a little early in the game. Um, we're still waiting on details on that. I know the place that we were renting, the people we were renting from, I did hear that they didn't have renter's insurance, but thank God with my car insurance, um, I did pull out a policy. So we're just waiting to see what that will cover. It'll be a small amount, but anything helps. So it's a small community. 
how are, are you know are people able to come together and help each other uh, as we've seen in, That's in other places? That's what we're doing. Yeah. Yes, um, it was our townspeople who came together to help put out the fires, to get water to the firefighters, to the people who lost their homes, dog food, cat food, food, clothing for kids, and the other families that lost their stuff. It was all of us that came together to, you know, make sure we we're all mm-hmm. taken care of. We have a GoFundMe set up. It's on my Facebook page. It's not only for my family, but it's for our community as well. Whatever is made so that we can try to start having some kind of normalcy. There's a lot of girls that were on the cheerleading squad that lost their homes. Elderly people, like just anything that we can get, we're just going to use it as a community. And that's pretty much why I even put my story out there is so that we can get the help because we are a tiny town. We're not rich by any means. And we're country folk. We are there for each other. And, you know, that's just who we are. And, you know, it happened to another community around us. We would be the first to go and help them. That's who we are. Well, I'm glad you have that, Ryan. I'm so sorry for everything you, you and your family are, are going through. But I hope you get to rebuild and, and make some, some new memories together. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Ryan Hightower lost her home in Fritch, Texas, to a wildfire. We reached her in Buena Vista. Despite or because of how ambiguous it is, it's one of the all-time great final scenes of a TV series. A mob boss sits with his family in a North Jersey greasy spoon. He orders onion rings for the table. A suspicious character eyeballs them from across the room. Then the son says this to his father. Focus on the good times. Don't be shotcasted. Isn't that what you said one time? Try and remember the times that were good? I did? Yeah. Well, it's true, I guess. Seconds later, it's all over. The screen cuts to black, and that's it for The Sopranos. We'll never know for sure what happens to Tony, AJ, Carmela, and Meadow next, but we do know what is happening to the diner booth where it all went down. It's up for sale on eBay. Holston's Ice Cream Parlor in northern Jersey, where that final scene was shot, is doing some renovations. Chris Carey is the owner of Holston's. We reached him in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Chris, how many people have been ordering the onion rings because of what Tony Soprano said in that episode? A large, a large <laughs> amount. We used to probably sell two cases a week before Tony, and now we sell about 15 cases a week. You know, everybody wants Tony's onion rings. <laughs> he says they're the best in the state. Really, are they that good, though? I'm a connoisseur. They're good. I mean, are they the best in the state? I, I don't want it, but they are very good. Yeah. Okay, noted. This booth means a lot to you, clearly. So... You know, what was it like to make this decision that, that, that you're going to let it go? It was a tough decision. My partner and I uh, agonized probably for almost a year, but we also needed to replace the booths, which have taken, you know, a beating over the years since The Sopranos. I mean, The Sopranos ended 17 years ago, but we still pack people in every, every day, especially on the weekends, and they're just starting to fall apart. And before it gets that shabby, we decided to replace them. So... We thought long and hard, and we and we made the decision, but we also made the decision to replace exactly what we had, color scheme and everything. So 
a lot of people that don't know what's happening will walk into the store and not know that it's been changed. So, so the auction is, is still open until Monday on eBay. Our producer, right. also named Chris, just uh, looked at the mm-hmm. latest tally. It's uh, just over 68,000 U.S. right now. Yes. Is that right. in line with what you were thinking it would it would bring in? Or no way. We <laughs> that's why our opening bid we we put a minimum opening bid of three thousand dollars, and you know hoping to get maybe five or ten out of it just to help offset some costs within twenty four hours. We were when I went to bed last night, we were at fifty seven thousand, and I was like, my my mind was blown. I said, you know how we have three days. How far can this go? Where in your mind, you know, ideally, where would you like to, to see that booth end up? I'd like to see it end up with somebody who's a, a true fan of the show. I mean, because it was such an iconic show. It was such a great show. Uh, James Gandolfini was a gentleman to work with. I mean, he was just a great guy. And I just hope that it winds up with somebody who appreciates it, not just somebody who's got a lot of money that wants to buy something. You know, I really want somebody to have it that it means something to them. As it does to us, it means a lot to us. When you so. say he was great to work with, you know because you appear in that right. Final yeah, scene. my partner and I appear. If you blink, you'll miss us. You know. But How can we find you? you Tell know, us what to look for. I'm going to watch it again. We're again. actually flipping burgers. Okay. Behind the, they show you behind the grill. They show the burgers flipping, and my partner and I are standing next to each other. You know, and it was they were long, 15 hour days. You know, for five days, and it was. Uh, for a very short shoot, for what I thought. Were you? Did you interact, you know, closely with James Gandolfini? Do you have any memories? Oh yeah, he was he was great. My partner and I were behind a grill one yeah. time, and he came back and he, you know, what do you got to eat back here? You know, <laughs> and, you know, we made him something. You know, he he was very very gracious. Took pictures with myself, my partner, our wives, our kids. Um, you know, signed signed autographs, signed pictures. He was, yeah. you know. When he was out of character, when he was in character, you you knew that you stayed away. When the camera stopped, he was he was a really a nice gentleman. Sixteen, seventeen years since the finale mm-hmm. aired. Uh, you know, just if anyone hasn't seen it, we're going to talk about it. So just uh, be be forewarned. Okay. It leaves a lot, not you, but for people who haven't seen it and don't know what happened, yeah. don't have questions about what happened. Right. You were there when it was yeah. shot, you know, closest we're going to get to an to an eyewitness. What do you think happened? Right. <laughs> I don't think he died. Really? That's my, that's my belief. I don't think that he died. I had my own thoughts. I had my thoughts that David Chase probably wanted to do a movie, you know, or whatever, oh. if Tony hadn't, if, if James hadn't passed away, but... I just don't think he died. I just think it was just the way they ended it. I mean, it made everybody talk. I mean, yeah. people talked for a year about it. People still asked, talking. What happened? Yeah. yeah, they're still talking. What happened? What happened? Like, I don't know. I was, you know, <laughs> nobody told us it was going black. <laughs> I thought my TV broke. <laughs> no, no. A lot of people did. Did the credits yeah. came up? So, what you think? You think Meadow finally after parking that car? Oh my God! I just watched it again. It was so frustrating. Yeah. Learn how to parallel yes. park, lady. But when she comes, <laughs> you think she comes in? They sit down and they enjoy the onion rings. That's it. What about yeah, the guy in the members-only jacket? Everybody's got their opinions. I just think that Tony already had his eye on him. Yeah. I just want to believe that he didn't die. So. <laughs> We should mention, yeah. though, the, the jukebox is not, not included in the price, right? No, it's the just jukebox the booth. is not included. That was a gift from HBO, and that's going to stay on the on the new booth that's going to be there. Also, with another plaque on the wall saying that this booth is reserved for the Soprano family. Focus on the good times. 
Yes, exactly. And they have been good times. So, Chris, I really appreciate your time. I'm so glad we could speak. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye now. Chris Carey is the owner of Holston's Ice Cream Parlor. We reached him in Bloomfield, New Jersey, where he clearly took the words of this song to heart. This is Journey with Don't Stop Believing." He just wanted to get in and get out, but somehow he got tricked into promising to get in and get out. Now French President Emmanuel Macron is hoping everyone will forget he made that promise, or at least that he can keep it without getting some kind of weird rash. Yesterday, he went to tour the Olympic Village in northern Paris, which by late July will be full of thousands of athletes and tens of thousands of condoms. And while President Macron was talking about cleaning up the Seine for swimming events, he was surprised by a question from a reporter. Since it's so clean now, the reporter asked him if he would swim in it, to which the president said, ha ha, why yes, of course I will swim in it. The reporter asked when. The president quipped, I won't give you the date, you might show up. And then he winked as if to say, what fun, and also, never ask me about this again. The people do not tend to swim in the Seine, a river known for being filthy, unpleasantly viscous and potentially housing krakens. But France has now spent 1.4 billion euros cleaning it up for the imminent Olympics. So President Macron's expression said he wanted to believe he could swim in the river, but also that he had seen a rat using a diaper as a raft in it. Dan Angelescu believes the president shouldn't worry. He's been tracking water quality during the Seine cleanup, and he spoke to Neil last April. Dan, how strange is it for Parisians to to try to wrap their head around the idea that they'll be able to swim in the Seine? Well, you know, it's it is a little bit strange given that for maybe eighty years or so, swimming in the Seine wasn't allowed because it was too polluted with uh, essentially with bacteria and pathogens. So people would get sick from the river. Yeah. Do you think people are psychologically ready for that dip? I think they are. You know, in Paris, there was another swim site, open water swim site that opened in a side canal, uh, which is uh, at Villette. And uh, people have been swimming there. And, you know, maybe initially they were a little bit, uh, you know, questioning it, but then it became really popular. So I think the same thing will probably happen here. Scientist Dan Angelescu talking to Neil last April about being part of the effort to clean up the Seine for the Paris Olympics. Starvation is no longer a threat in Gaza. It's a reality. And at a press briefing in Geneva today, the World Health Organization's Christian Lindmeier made it clear that what we're seeing now is just the beginning. So the official records yesterday or this morning said there was a 10th child officially registered 
in a hospital as having starved to death. Um, a very sad threshold, similar sad as the 30,000 deaths we reached all over Gaza. And similar like those, these are official records. And as you all point out exactly, the, the unofficial numbers can unfortunately be expected to be higher. Um, and once we see them, once we see them registered in hospitals, once we see them registered uh, officially, it's already further down the line. That was World Health Organization spokesperson Christian Lindmeier speaking in Geneva today. According to the UN, at least 576,000 people in Gaza are one step away from famine. And according to aid organizations still operating in the territory, that's because Israel is not letting in nearly enough food. Rachel Cummings is the deputy team leader for Save the Children's Gaza Response. She entered Gaza on Monday. We reached her today in Rafa. Rachel, you've worked in conflict zones before. You've seen famine before. How does this compare? Yeah, I think it's incomparable. Uh, this is an extremely complex situation uh, with compounding complexity. Uh, so the clip there was referencing the children that we are now understanding have died from malnutrition in a health facility. Um, and on top of that, you've got a massive population that has been displaced, over a million people in Rafa, have a population of 2.2 million people, all of whom are affected by the war. Um, and complexity and the constant bombardment that the people in, in Gaza are experiencing, all of these are compounding factors and obviously resulting in children dying from malnutrition, which should not be happening in this in this country. What are some examples of what you've seen since you arrived in Rafa? Just driving through the streets of Rafa for the last few days, what strikes me is just the number of people on the streets, very few cars, people moving, uh, trying to find food. We've seen children carrying empty bowls, just looking for food, looking for something to put in their stomachs. So a lot of people on the move and a lot of children who appear to be unaccompanied, children looking after children on the streets. And these children look tired, they look exhausted, they look hungry. You know, they're, they're not well equipped, their clothes are in, inappropriate, some don't have shoes on. And then the smell in Rafa, you know, there's open sewage, the sewage system is not working, so there's open sewage in the streets. So it's a really striking um, environment to be in. It's, it's shocking, actually. Uh, and as you said, I've been, I've been doing this job for quite some time, but this is, this is an extraordinary situation that, that children and their families find themselves in. You're in the south, in Rafa, as we've said. Uh, yesterday, yeah. we were reporting on what happened in the north, uh, as people were trying to get aid, food in particular, more than 100 people were killed. What are you hearing from your partners in, in northern Gaza? I mean, the situation is desperate. People are absolutely desperate for food. We've had reports, some of our team, uh, family members have had to stay in the north to care for relatives. And they're resorting to eating whatever they can find. Aid is not getting through. Our partners are still continuing to work with whatever they can get their hands on, really. So it's a really very desperate situation. And the children that have now been reported in the north of dying of malnutrition, so this is really the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I was reading the account from, from um, one of the, the people you, you work with there in the north, uh, Noor, saying that her husband has yeah. told her people have resorted to eating bird and animal food and tree leaves. 
They've been forced to scavenge for scraps of food, scraps they found in his sister's house that had already been ruined by rats, but they washed them yeah. and ate them anyway. Yeah. I mean, imagine imagine being in that situation and imagine being a parent or caregiver in that situation with children to feed. It's, it's extraordinary, really. Yeah. And aid, obviously, and not enough aid is coming through. We have aid in trucks sitting on the border. Many partners and UN agencies have the same situation. I drove from Cairo on Monday and passed hundreds and hundreds of trucks sitting on the border. So there is aid to come through. We need aid to come through. There are uh, restrictions on the number of trucks that are able to pass, and that is unpredictable. So sometimes trucks can pass, sometimes trucks do not pass. But that's one part of the problem. The other part of the problem is then accessing the community safely outside of Rafa and into the middle and the north areas. And um, humanitarian workers and uh, communities obviously being being attacked in this war. What are Palestinians, when you're able to speak with them or your, your team is able to speak with them, what are they saying to you as, as you give them what you can? Well, they are desperate. So whatever we can give them, of course, people are uh, thankful to receive that aid, but also they are frustrated that the aid community is not doing more. They're frustrated that this situation is going on for so long. And just in Rafa, there is a constant sound of, I can hear it now, the drones overhead. So there's constant buzzing of drones and then the sound of uh, sort of aerial bombardments or bombs going off not far away. Um, and I've been here four days. Some people have been experiencing this for five months and it's very disturbing for children to have to live through this. And of course, so people are genuinely concerned about the impact that this has on children now and how that manifests in their behavior, mm -hmm. but also the medium and long-term effects on the whole generation. It's unknown. It's, un it's unknown, really, in terms of how this is going to affect children longer term. What would you say to Israeli officials about what they could do to allow more aid through, what they should do, in your view? What I would say is stop bombing children. Create a humanitarian access, unfettered access to the population, safe spaces for the community and for humanitarian actors to be able to operate safely uh, and to provide the much needed assistance for the for the children and communities in this in this country in, inside Gaza. The number we talked about, the 10 children who are now officially reported to have died of starvation, how quickly could that number climb? Yeah, as I said, I think this is the tip of the iceberg. You know, not only is there not enough food, but there's not enough uh, clean water. So children will be dying from diarrhea. Children will be dying from pneumonia. Um, and the malnutrition will sort of exacerbate that because people's uh, children's immune systems will be absolutely decimated and their resilience um, is, is gone. So yes, we will see the numbers rising, I think, quite quickly, unless there is a ceasefire mm -hmm. and unless there is um, an ability for aid, uh, medical supplies, food and water to be provided to the, to the children and the families, yeah. Rachel, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye.
Rachel Cummings is the deputy team leader for Save the Children's Gaza Response. We reached her in Rafa. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. It began as a casual day of boating off the coast of Hawaii until two humpback whales started swimming around the boat. So a pair of photographers on board seized the opportunity and took some pictures. But when they took a close look at the pictures, what they saw was not simply beautiful. It was jaw-dropping, not to mention steamy. So they showed the images to their friend Stephanie Stack at the Pacific Whale Foundation. We reached Stephanie Stack in Maui. Stephanie, what did you see when these, these images came across your desk? So uh, I was contacted by these two photographers and they told me that they had captured what they believed to be the first photographic evidence of two humpback whales mating. And I was a bit skeptical at first. I thought, mm, okay, <laughs> let's have a look at this. And they showed me the photographs and indeed that is what they had captured. And I was just stunned and amazed when I saw the <laughs> photographs. To be clear... This is the first time an image has been captured. This is happening often? You're correct. I mean, of course, whales mate. It's (laughs) something that we do. We see baby whales all of the time. But in the scientific community, it has never been observed or documented before. And so this is a world's first. And we're going to talk about why it is so rare to capture that kind of image. But there was something else in this this particular series of photos that that caught your attention as well. That's right. Yeah. So we were looking at the photographs and then one of the photographers asked me, he said, "Um, are you sure that this is a male and a female? And I said, oh, can you send me the other photographs that you have taken? And we looked at the underside of the whales because in humpback whales, males and females are different externally. They have different anatomy. And so you can tell them apart. So we looked at the underside of the whales and realized Yes, indeed. These are two male whales. So that was quite a surprise to us. And we realized that this was incredibly unique and rare and, and um, very special photographs to have obtained. What did you say when you when you saw them and realized what was going on in them? Uh, my mind was completely blown when I saw <laughs> the photographs. And then when I realized that it was two males, it was not what I was expecting. Uh, and And so I thought, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. And I immediately asked them if we could uh, publish it, write it up and share it because I knew it was going to be a very rare situation and an important one that we document and share with the community. And we should say these are just two two photographers. They're not researchers or scientists. That's correct. Yeah, they were two um, members of the public who were out recreationally boating and just happened to be in the right place at the right time. They are professional photographers, and so they had great photographic equipment with them on the boat, which turned out to be really 
lucky for me, <laughs> and just leaned over the side of the boat with their cameras and took these photos. Yeah, what did they think they were capturing? Um, they really didn't know. At, at first, when they saw the two whales, they were, so the two whales swam towards their boat and then swam in circles numerous times around the boat. So they were just thinking, oh, what a great opportunity to take some beautiful underwater photos of whales. Uh, and then their attention was sort of drawn towards them because one of them appeared on the thin side and the color looked a little bit off to what a normal whale looks like. So they thought, well, maybe there's something going on and, and we can take a look from the underwater footage. Were there other things that they discovered, you know, as they were taking these photographs that that tell you more about the mating rituals? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, thanks to their firsthand observation and all of the really good documentation that they had collected, you know, I was able to look through the scientific literature and see what we knew about whale reproduction and whale sexual behavior and sort of piece this together into a story. But because this is the first time it's ever been observed and documented, a lot of what we know now is because of this particular encounter. So before these photographs, for example, we didn't know the positioning and exactly how two whales would position themselves together when they're having sex. So we have evidence of that now, and it's and it's a really um, great advancement in terms of our knowledge of whale biology. As we've said, this is happening all the time, but why is it so rare to capture it happening? It's incredibly hard to study whales. They are marine mammals, so they breathe air, but they spend most of their lives under the water. And we, as the people studying them, do most of our research from boats, um, or land, and so we just get these tiny glimpses of their lives, really, and it's incredibly difficult to capture this type of information about whales in general. But there's quite a lot that we still do not know about humpback whales. Uh, for example, a whale giving birth was just captured on film for the very first time. Uh, it was partially captured in 2020, and then the full um, event from start to finish was captured for the first time just recently. It was announced only last month. So we're learning quite a lot about these whales um, just now. Until then, we didn't know what the birth looked like either or, you know, how yeah. how long it took and when and where um, moms were giving birth to the calves. And this is quite similar to that in that we haven't known anything about it until just now. And the fact that, that these were two male whales, what does that tell you? Yeah, uh, homosexual behavior is, is quite common in the animal kingdom. It's not unusual at all for cetaceans in particular. So for other species of whales and for many species of dolphins, um, we've seen male and male sexual behavior before. So that's not um, particularly surprising or uncommon. Uh, but it had never been documented before for humpback whales. And so it's great to have this mm -hmm. confirmation that it's happening in humpback whales and really illuminates a new new um, yeah. avenue for exploration for researchers. We can, you know, now be on the lookout for this and, and understand, um, have more context to similar types of yeah. encounters if they happen in the future. Stephanie, thanks for your time. Oh, thanks very much. It's great to talk to you, Neil. Likewise. 
Stephanie Stack is a researcher with the Pacific Whale Foundation and a PhD student at Griffith University. She's also the lead author of a paper analyzing the photos of two humpback whales, which was published earlier this week. And you can read a lot more about what humpbacks get up to at cbc.ca slash AIH. Nicole Rabbit has four children. She's also one of four siblings. But when she spoke to a Senate committee in Ottawa yesterday, she made it clear that things could have been very different. You took generations from us. I could have had more kids. My daughter could have had more siblings. I could have had more siblings. Our family would have been bigger just like you wiped out a generation. Ms. Rabbit is a member of the Blood Tribe in Alberta and of the Survivor's Circle for Reproductive Justice. Both she and her mother were victims of coerced sterilization. Her mother died earlier this year, but even in grief, Nicole Rabbit was determined to travel to Ottawa to testify about the importance of a private member's bill that would make doctors who perform forced and coerced sterilizations liable for conviction under Canada's criminal code. Senator Yvonne Boyer is the bill's sponsor. We reached her in Kemptville, Ontario. Senator Boyer, our audience should know that that happened to Nicole Rabbit in 2001. How was that still happening then? How could it still be happening now? Uh, Because things aren't changing quick enough. And having a bill like S-250 is going to help make it move a little bit faster so that we can stop these atrocities from happening. Four sterilizations are already considered assault. What would this law change? Well, there hasn't been any convictions under the assault provisions in the criminal code. And this law sets aside a section for forced and coerced sterilization. So what it's going to do, it's going to deter the act of sterilization, basically. And it's going to help doctors and it's going to help women and men who have been sterilized against their will without consent or being coerced into sterilization. How does this unfold based on the testimony you've heard? Well, what I've heard is that uh, women have been subjected to sterilization when they haven't actually consented or they have um, given consent when they're in labor, or they've given consent in between contractions, or they've given consent when they have been threatened in one way or another. So it's not actual consent that they're giving. It's not a valid, free, prior, and informed consent. And, and, and Ms. Rabbit testified that, that she, when she asked, she was told that it was reversible. Yes, we, we've heard that uh, several times, that uh, they, women have been told it's reversible, that there's no problem at all, but, uh, but that's not true. It's a permanent procedure, and it's a, it's a terrible thing that's happening to, to women, Indigenous women, people with disabilities, intersex people. Um, we also have um, the Black community, vulnerable people have undergone sterilizations without consent, and this has got to stop. Why do you think it's happening? Uh, I think there's a huge power imbalance, for one thing, and we have 
a population of Indigenous women who have been subjected to colonial violence. And there's a judgment call by the medical profession saying that you, well, you've had four kids, you don't need any more, and uh, we're just going to sterilize you. I'll, I'll give you an, um, an example of how pervasive this really is, is not long ago I was checking into a hotel late at night and I was the only one in the lobby and I rolled my suitcase in and then a woman behind the, the desk said to me, oh, uh, you're that senator of sterilization. And I said, you know, I have other jobs as well. And she looked at me and her eyes got big and she started to cry and she said, they did it to me when I was 21. And now I'm 35. My children are grown. I had four children then. And I'm 35. And I have a new partner. And I want to have more children. And I can't. So um, this, I mean, this is everywhere. Where are the the governing bodies, you know, the colleges of physicians, uh, you know, in, in all of the provinces in all of this? Well, they're, they're appalled, too. I mean, um, I do know that there's been education that uh, provincially, culturally relevant education. And also in British Columbia, I, I have been working with the First Nations Health Authority there, making sure that uh, there's consent forms that are going to be applicable to Indigenous women. And I want to pick up on what Nicole Rabbit had said. And it's uh, the caretakers. She, she was her caretaker for her mother, and, and she could have had more brothers and sisters to assist with the caretaking. And then the same thing in Nicole's generation, and then in her niece's generation. So we've got a whole plateau of people who don't exist because of the sterilization. She used the word genocide in her testimony. That's exactly what it is. That word has been used many times by many women. And that's how they describe it. It's genocide for our people. You used to work, Senator, as an operating room nurse, uh, as I understand it. Did you ever see or hear women coming under this kind of coercion, this pressure? You know, it's funny you should you should mention that because I worked in um, areas where there was high population of Indigenous people. And on more than one occasion, the nurses would say the Indian problem will go away once they're all sterilized. So that I've heard those words more than once. You mentioned that the the colleges and others are appalled, but but really, do you feel like they're doing enough to end this beyond the kind of education you're talking about? Actually, going after doctors or nurses where there have been complaints. Well, it's happened in the Northwest Territories. So we have um, a doctor that's that uh, he had sterilized without consent and in a woman, Dr. Kataska. And he was found guilty of a breach of the ethics code of the Canadian Medical Association. He was fined $20,000 for the hearing and he was given five months suspension. But, but still practicing? This is, and he's still practicing. He's, he's now in B.C., so, I mean, I personally believe it should have been a lot stronger than that, and there should be criminal charges against him. However, it's something, and it sets a precedent that I'm hoping will continue to be followed. We'd like to leave listeners with, with a bit more from Nicole Rabbit from her testimony yesterday. I actually want an apology for what happened to me. I want the Indigenous women, they need an apology. My mom didn't get an apology.
She lost her mother uh, in January. Do you think she and others will get that apology? I'm hoping they will. It's a recommendation that was set out by the Senate Standing Committee on Human Rights. This bill, Bill S-250, is the first recommendation. Mm -hmm. And there's also a recommendation in that second study that uh, does ask for an apology. How soon might your bill become law? Well, I'm hoping, with my fingers crossed, that it would become law by the end of June. Senator, thank you for your time. Well, thank you very much. Senator Yvonne Boyer is the sponsor of a bill that would make coerced sterilization its own criminal violation. We reached her in Kempville, Ontario. The Hope for Wellness Helpline offers 24-hour support to Indigenous people across Canada. That number is 1-855-242-3310. And anyone in Canada who needs crisis support can dial 988 for immediate assistance. Residents of Brooklyn, Nova Scotia are throwing parties today because a hometown athlete threw something much heavier. This morning in Glasgow, Scotland, 27-year-old Sarah Mitten won gold in shot put at the World Athletics Indoor Championship, and she broke records doing it. The CBC's Devin Haru asked Ms. Mitten how she was feeling after the win, and coach Richard Parkinson joined that conversation. I still think it's settling in, but I am so excited. You know, I've been in second and third a lot, and I'm just really excited to kind of come out on top and start my year off really strong headed into Paris. How did you do it? Yeah, I think I had to, you know, I had to wake up a little bit. Um, once the German girl threw in 2019, I was like, okay, like, it's going to take a big throw. You need to settle it down, find your positions, and put something out there. And I, I was able to do that and get her by a centimeter. And then, you know, the sixth round is just my specialty. That's where all my big throws are. So I knew, like, if anyone came back for me, that I was going to be able to respond. Sarah, you've been focusing on consistency, being great throw after throw. you break a national record a week ago then you break your own national (laughs) record and then you do it again in your final throw describe what that means as you head into Paris yeah I think four years ago like consistency was my main issue like I had a really great PB I could throw far but it wasn't it wasn't quite there on the consistency level and now like just feeling so strong going into Paris knowing that every throw is consistently good and then I can build on that even in one in, within one competition. They'll be celebrating in Nova Scotia <laughs> and all across Canada sure as coach comes into play. Oh, hey! I don't know, I know somebody. I know somebody really important all of a sudden. Well and Richard, let's just get your initial reaction. Canada's first indoor shot put world champion. Is this a surprise? Um, yes, especially given the talent, but we are, it's something we've been working for. So, yes, it's a surprise when it's always something that comes true that you're always working for, right? I can't, you know, it doesn't even sound, make sense, does it? Just so exciting. Coach Richard Parkinson and before him Sarah Mitten speaking with the CBC in Scotland today. Portage 
Portage and Main, 50 below. The chorus to the Randy Backman and Neil Young song Prairie Town, a tribute to the famous intersection in Winnipeg where they both started out in garage bands in the 60s. It's been the site of some of Winnipeg's defining moments, from the 1919 general strike to Dale Howarchuk signing his contract with the Winnipeg Jets. The one thing you can't do there is uh, cross the street. Since 1997, pedestrian traffic has been blocked by huge barriers, with underground tunnels the only way to traverse the intersection. And some, like philanthropist Gail Asper, have long been calling for a change, as she told Neil last May. I wish I could take a jackhammer and take them down myself after hours discreetly at night. And I think about that all the time. Just take down the barriers. But not everyone agreed. In 2018, 65% of Winnipeggers voted to keep the barriers up in a non-binding plebiscite. And when he ran for office in 2022, Mayor Scott Gillingham said that he would support their decision. But today, he announced he wants Portage and Maine to be open to pedestrians again. We reached Mayor Gillingham in Winnipeg. Mayor Gillingham, that was that was Gail Asper I, I was speaking to. Be honest, secretly, did you want to do what she said she wanted to do and take the jackhammers? It seems like that would be a quick uh, solution, but of course uh, it's more complicated than that. And I've spoken to uh, Gail Asper about this several times, and I, I know that uh, she has been a strong advocate of taking down the barriers and opening the intersection to pedestrian traffic. How do you feel about it, though, before this decision? I know publicly, you know, when you campaigned, you said you would support the decision of Winnipeggers who voted in that plebiscite to keep those barriers up. But deep down? Well, deep down, what I really wanted, Neil, was wanted the information. And we we just (laughs) didn't have the information back in 2022 when I was campaigning for mayor, nor did we have it back in 2018 when I was running for re-election as a city councillor. We have information now, and, and the information that we have now has led me really to to you know come out today to say it's time to take the barricades down, open the intersection to pedestrian traffic, and 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 um, close the concourse down below Portage Main. The work that needs to be done, we have found out now, is going to cost at least seventy-three million dollars, if not more, and lead to up to five years of traffic construction. At the in in Portage of Maine in the intersection, and that's you know that's not good for news for motorists, and and that price tag is just uh, I think gives us pause to consider this a second time. And just to so our listeners understand completely, this is according to a new study, the information that you were looking for, as you said, to keep the intersection as it is with those barricades, but with necessary road repairs to the current intersection configuration would cost seventy three million dollars, as you said, and those construction delays. Even if you don't like that particular configuration, that seems like just an insane amount of money (laughs) and and time. So why would it cost that much to make those repairs and take that much time anyway? Well, there there are several uh, projects that have to be done, and you combine all those projects together, it it, it adds up to $73 million. Mm -hmm. Right now at the corner of Portage of Maine and Winnipeg, there is obviously an underground concourse where people can walk under the intersection. That is owned by the city of Winnipeg. It was put in place in 1979, and there was a 40-year agreement with property owners that Portage of Maine would not be open at street level to pedestrian traffic. Well, the membrane that protects that concourse has has really kind of lasted beyond its lifespan, and so there's a lot of leaks and there's water leaking uh, in in the concourse below, and so we need to replace the the membrane 
if we're going to continue on with the concourse. And we're going to have to do that again, this report says, in another 40 years. So we'd be spending $73 million today. That's what it calls for, to repair the Mm -hmm. membrane, and we'd have to do it all over again in 40 years. Because the membrane is right at Portage of Maine, the intersection would have to be ripped up uh, in segments and in sections, and that would lead to, as I said, about five years Mm -hmm. of construction interruption and, and traffic delays and so I don't support that. Uh, I, I believe now it's time to decommission the concourse and open the intersection to pedestrians. What will it cost in terms of, of money and time to open it up to pedestrians, the intersection? To open the intersection at grade would cost between 10 to $13 million. There's barricades that have to come down, new traffic signalization has to be put in. Um, but to decommission the underground concourse, there would also be a cost. We have a very early and very broad range of $20 million to $50 million, so we need more detailed information on that mm-hmm. from our staff. Uh, but that wouldn't happen immediately. It would be a few years away. A lot of people who, who wanted it open to pedestrians didn't, you know, they don't love, they may not love the concourse, but as Ms. Asper said, you know, in a city like Toronto, we have the option. So if it gets cold, you can take the underground path, as it's called in Toronto, uh, or you can walk outside. So... How do you think it's going to sit with people that you're taking away that second option? You're giving them something they've been fighting for, but you're taking away this other thing. We really have to make a decision right now as as a council, looking not only at the immediate costs we'd be facing today, but then the ongoing cost of maintenance and security to keep that uh, and repair to keep that concourse open. And I I just don't think that's a good use of, of taxpayers' funds, quite frankly. We also have uh, a really exciting moment coming up in our city's history related to our transit master plan. We're looking to completely transform the way uh, transit routes are in the city of Winnipeg, and and there's a big change coming that's slated to come in June of 2025, where we're going to go from a current transit system network, network system to a spine and feeder system. And it's going to be a change that happens in June of 2025. What I would like to see mm-hmm. is the intersection opened in June of 2025 at the same time. Uh, the new transit system is going to change the way uh, buses move through Portage of Maine much more efficiently and providing much better service. So I think the timing needs to line up, mm-hmm. if, if at all possible. In, you know, as you look towards the future and what your legacy might be as a, as a mayor and, and this particular strategy and decision, what's your dream scenario? You know, when you when you look at that intersection, what do you see there in, in a few years? I'm certainly not thinking <laughs> legacy at this point. I'm seeing this really trying to see this for what it is. It's an infrastructure decision that has to be made as to whether, you know, we invest $73 million plus to maintain the status quo or we take this as an opportunity to make what I think is a better financial decision and will benefit uh, the downtown and avoid traffic disruptions and chaos for five years. I think ultimately opening the intersection to pedestrian traffic and encouraging pedestrians to, you know, to, to be uh, on street level and in the area really can f- really very much fits with the investments that many private business owners are making uh, in the downtown. And I, uh, I just think it will enhance the, the, the future of our downtown also. Mayor, thank you. Thank you. Scott Gillingham is the mayor of Winnipeg, which is where we reached him.
You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 after Your World Tonight. And you can, of course, also listen to our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or, of course, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.